It's Monday, December 20th, in case you forgot what day it is. Read a headline this morning. The Omicron variant is expected to cause a massive increase in hospitalizations in the U.S. I'm paraphrasing. I hate to sound like a broken record, but remember flatten the curve? Remember that? Remember we were going to we're going to shelter in place. We we're going to mask up. We we're going to do all the things we needed to do to make sure that the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. I don't remember how long it took, a month, two months, before everybody forgot about that. And suddenly it became about protecting every single vulnerable person in the world and masking up and restricting public gatherings until there was no more coronavirus whatsoever. I remember a letter to the New York Times where the person said it was a woman who said she was going to mask up until there was no more coronavirus. So I don't know if she realized it, but that means for the rest of her life. How'd we get here? Politics. Why politics? Clicks. Clickbait. Clickbait only works when people are motivated to click. What gets people to click? Fear and anger. Get people scared, get people angry. What do they do? They take sides. And it becomes political. The virus, the most apolitical thing in the world, became political. So now, try telling anybody now. After a year and a half of this, try telling anybody now, we need to flatten the curve. You'll be laughed out of the room. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know what's not going to happen. We're not going to be flattening any curves. We blew that, didn't we? Have fun, healthcare workers. It's bad enough that people are, are going to suffer because of this in terms of the health consequences is bad enough that the least uh, or the most vulnerable rather are going to be the ones who suffer the most. But now the nurses and the doctors and, you know, the people nobody ever thinks about who work in the hospitals and the cafeterias and in reception and, you know, doing what, oh, uh, former Screeching Weasel uh, bass player John, Johnny Personality does, which is patient transport, which includes dead patient transport. So all those people are going to be in trouble. And uh, I know for me, it, it's become obvious that I need surgery on my other shoulder. And I'm just going to put it off as long as I can, but I just hope it doesn't get real bad because who knows what the hospitals are going to look like in the next month. I had a pretty good weekend I uh, had on Friday night. You know, it seems like, it doesn't seem like it, it is that these different events that the kids are involved in, they always try and try and get everything in before the weekend before Christmas, 
So we had the belt test for my son for karate on Friday night. He moved up to red belt. He's been doing great. He's in black belt training. He's also in leadership training where he will learn to, to uh, assist and uh, instruct in classes. So he, uh, he passed the test with flying colors, got his red belt, moved up to level four. Uh, on Saturday, we had the uh, skating show, the Christmas skating show, or they probably call it the holiday skating show. And my daughter uh, performed in that. She did a solo, and she also did a, I don't know what they call it, a duet. I don't know what, but she went out with another skater, a friend of hers. And uh, I just, I always, whenever I see her skate, she's better than she was the last time. She does all these competitions and, and she's always moving up to a new level of, of competition. Um, but I think back to when she first stepped on the ice when she was just a little kid and she couldn't stand up and she kept falling down, but she never lost this big grin on her face. She just loved it. And she worked so hard and continues to work so hard and sees that improvement. I really think um, sports, athletics, competition can be really good for kids for that reason alone, that it can teach them if you work really hard, you will improve. You might not be the best. I don't believe in this, this thing of telling kids, you can do anything you want. No, you can't. You know, I'm going to tell that to my daughters. You can do anything you want. They can't pee standing up. I mean, they can, but they're going to get wet. You know, but I, but I do believe in telling them if you, if you make an effort and work hard, you will improve. And the harder you work, the more you'll improve. And it's good that they are all involved in activities where they can see that. My other daughter does uh, soccer and has seen a tremendous improvement over the past season. She's also doing indoor soccer this winter. She also does piano, as does her brother. And so last night we had their piano recital. And their teacher will give us a choice of, of two different times. So there's two recitals spread out by about two hours. And he really puts a lot of, of thought and effort into how he uh, kind of sequences, I guess, would be my term for it, um, the order in which uh, the students appear. So my daughter has been playing this piece. I've heard it, I don't know how many times over the past six, eight weeks. It's a mazurka, which is a Polish dance in the style of Chopin, not written by Chopin, but in that style. And uh, the student before her last night played the same piece. And her teacher said he did this deliberately because the students were playing in different styles, essentially. So the first student came up and, and played it considerably faster than my daughter plays it. And he played it really well. It was a very nice piece. But my daughter comes up and, and does it at a slower tempo and with a lighter touch. And it took on this quality 
this melancholy quality that that wasn't there as much in the faster version. The faster version had really good things about it, but when my daughter played it, this other thing came out that was maybe not as prominent. And, uh, and so even though I've heard this thing, I don't know how many times, it's just been running through my head all morning. She did a really terrific job. Uh, then my son went right after her and his teacher introduced him and said, he said, I was playing piano and he showed up for his lesson, my son did, and he listened for a minute and he said, oh, that's from uh, Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier, book two. And the teacher was fairly amazed. He said, you know, that's, uh, there aren't a lot of 10-year-old boys who would know that. He said, I'm nine. This was a couple months before his his 10th birthday. And, uh, well, the well-tempered clavier is, if you don't know, it's uh, solo piano pieces. And um, I don't know if they're, I guess they are instructional pieces. Bach wrote a lot of instructional pieces, but it's also kind of a demonstration. So this is Bach writing a prelude and a fugue in each key for solo piano. And he does it in, as the teacher explained last night in introducing my son, he does it in half steps. So the whole thing is laid out you know, starts in C, I suppose, and then goes up half steps to go through all the major and minor uh, keys. So there are 24 pieces because there are 12 keys, and there's a prelude and a fugue in each key. 12 times 2 is 24. And then Bach, being the rascal that he was, decided 20 years later, eh, I'll do it again. And so that's book two. Book two is him doing a whole new set of preludes and fugues in, in each key. So he's the teacher's introducing this and saying, okay, so Chopin did the same thing. Except Chopin didn't organize it by half steps. He did it in the circle of fifths. And I didn't know this. I've never, I've never, I've probably heard some of the pieces, but I wasn't aware of this. So I've got to seek out a, a good recording of uh, Chopin's Preludes and Fugues. But so my son gets up and starts playing this and I don't recognize it at all. And I hear the kid practice every day. He, he plays piano usually a minimum of three times a day. He's down there after breakfast until it's time to go to school he does his regular practice after school, and he's usually noodling around after dinner as well. He just loves playing piano. And I didn't recognize it, and I know I would have. So I don't know where he's been practicing this piece. He played it wonderfully. Um, and then the, the final student who came after him played a, another uh, Chopin prelude from that, from that uh, cycle uh, in E minor. Uh, but it occurred to me how much better a musician my son is than than I am. Uh, I'm embarrassed to practice piano when he's in the house. 
uh, it's just, it doesn't come naturally to me. I have to work very, very hard at it. I can't really sight read. I can, but at such a slow pace that it's a joke and I make mistakes all the time. He sight reads like a whiz and, and improvises and creates his own music. Um, and it sounds like real music. It's not like me just plinking around on two keys. So because of that, I had him play the keyboards on the new Screeching Weasel album. It's just a matter of he's going to do it quicker than me and better than me. Um, he didn't play all the keyboards on the album because Mike, our producer, MK, added some uh, while we were mixing. But all the main, you know, where the keyboard is really prominent is, uh, is played by my son which was fun for him and exciting for me. But it really made me think, you know, hearing him play this Chopin piece last night, I was very proud of him and his sister. Um, but it made me think, well, it's just like I sit down at the piano and it's like, it's like I've got not 10 fingers, but 10 little jackhammers. I'm just pounding away like a freaking moron, you know, like I'm like Frankenstein at the keyboard. But then I thought, you know, who knows? Maybe someday I can use that to my advantage. And I thought of the great Russian Soviet era pianist Maria Udina. And I don't remember how I ran across her music. It was probably because I was searching for different versions of Bach's Goldberg variations. There are basically two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who are familiar with Bach's Goldberg variations and consider them to be one of the great uh, works of art in human history. And then there are all the other people who live joyless, meaningless, empty lives. I love this piece, solo piano piece. And it'll run eh, somewhere, I want to say, between 45 minutes or an hour. It's a bunch of different pieces, but it's a, it's a, it creates a unified whole with a W. And Bach, of course, there were no pianos in his day. I think the, the first piano was invented probably when he was a pretty old man, but he composed on harpsichord. So the, the Goldberg variations in particular can be pretty difficult to play because he was, uh, he was composing and playing on a two tiered keyboard. But if you're playing a regular piano keyboard, what happens with these Goldberg variations is you will have to do a lot of crossing over. And there's, there's times when you're hitting keys that, are with your right hand that are very close to keys you're hitting with your left hand. And it can just, it can just be a bit of a jumble because it's essentially not really meant for a regular piano keyboard. So they're difficult pieces and they're also done in that wonderful style that Bach had for his keyboard pieces of, it, there's a real meditative uh, quality to it. And there's a lot of, shading, I guess you might say, um, the different pieces within the Goldberg variations 
kind of touch. And I don't think he was necessarily doing this intentionally or deliberately, certainly not in the romantic sense. But you'll get different kind of emotional um, tensions and releases and feelings from, from the different pieces. And so generally when you hear recordings or performances of the Goldberg variations, there's a certain, uh, the approach tends to be relatively delicate. Um, regardless of whatever tempo a performer might choose, it's not this kind of thunderous Beethoven-esque kind of piano music. Except then along comes Maria Udina and boom, she's hitting those keys like a jackhammer. <laughs> and I love that recording. I absolutely love it because it shouldn't work and it does work. She somehow manages to play the Goldberg variations as though her fingers are issuing orders and barking commands at the keys on the keyboard, like they're her troops and she's the drill sergeant. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she pulls it off, but it's really, um, it's not the only recording you would want to listen to of the Goldberg variations. Probably shouldn't be your first one you listen to, but boy, I wouldn't want to be without it. She was, uh, she was rumored at least to um, be a very outspoken critic of Stalin. Uh, and that was obviously a pretty dangerous thing to do, but he was a big fan of hers and he put up with it, supposedly. But before doing this podcast, I, I went and Googled and the first thing that came up was a story about all the myths surrounding uh, Maria Udina and um, and particularly regarding um, you know these issues with Stalin. Apparently there was a film that came out uh, a few years back that uh, suggested that she had essentially killed Stalin by sending him a letter that upset him so he dropped dead which is almost certainly not true. It was apparently told in um, Shostakovich's uh, autobiography, which is evidently mostly fake. I've never read it. Anyway, this is a terrific article. Uh, it's called the, Pian uh, P the Pianist Who Killed Stalin, Revisiting the Life of Maria Udina 50 Years After Her Death. It came out a little over a year ago. Van Magazine, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to link that in the description or the comments or wherever I can to this podcast because it's a really fascinating read and there's some cool pictures of her in here and there's YouTube links to some of her performances. Uh, Stravinsky, Piano Sonata, she loves Stravinsky. Uh, pictures at an exhibition. Uh, Schubert's uh, Sonata 960. Oh my goodness, that is just one of the greatest piano works of all time, if you ask me. Uh, but her style is really just, um, you could, you could say it is without nuance maybe. And yet it's really compelling. If you like piano music, please check this out. I will link it for you. I love this story. 
In October 1961, this is from the article, she wrote to a young composer imploring him to write a piano concerto for her while openly admitting in the same letter that she had never heard or seen a note of his music and could not rem remember his patronym. I, I love that because it sounds like something I would do. And then it continues, the 26-year-old Arvo Pert never replied. Because Arvo Pert, I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Uh, the great composer from where? One of the uh, smaller Eastern European countries. And I, I, it's on the tip of my brain. I can't remember. I want to say Hungary, but it's not Hungary. It's a smaller country than that. Um, anyway, he's, and he's interesting just as a sort of parenthetical uh, because his early music, which I enjoy, but it's very, it's much more, I guess, avant-garde. Um, and then as he grew older, he began doing more religiously themed music and stuff that is much more kind of traditional sounding and melodic. And it's just really, really outstanding music. And uh, it's interesting because that is usually the opposite of how it works. Unfortunately, a lot of modern composers, it seems, eschew melody. I think that's the first time I've ever used that word, non-ironically. But I remember reading something years ago suggesting that melody is dead. Everything that can be done with it has been done, and uh, it's time to move on. It was probably in reference to 12-tone music or something like that. I can't remember now, but I thought, that's insane. Uh, when you give up on melody, you've given up on music, because all that's left is to make music that will impress snobs who are just pretending to be impressed by it because they think they're supposed to, and musicologists and, and music critics and other musicians and composers. But you're not trying to connect with people anymore. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think it's one of the reasons why Puccini is um, looked down on by so many people, because his music is incredibly melodic and and has such a wide appeal. There's There's a certain type of musician and musicologist and music critic who hates that. They hate when music appeals to a large number of people, and I think that's crazy. That should be every composer's goal, whether they're composing what we call classical music or, or pop or rock and roll or country or whatever it is. You should be trying to reach as many people as you can. The second you stop is the second you're up your own ass. And that's not good. Might feel good, might be warm in there and comfy, but... You can't breathe, and after a while, you realize it stinks. If you have any sense at all, at least. I think I've gotten about all I can out of that metaphor. Don't give up on melody. Well, the Christmas break starts for the kids on Thursday, I guess. Wednesdays are the last day of school. So I have a meeting in 15 minutes, a business meeting, God help us all. Uh, hopefully that'll work out. And then I've got two more days of work before I take some time off. I do not know if I will do a podcast next week. My guess is probably not, but who knows, maybe something interesting or exciting will happen and I'll want to talk about it or I'll have some spare time. Could happen. 
but you probably won't hear from me again until after the new year. So, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever other holiday you may be celebrating, unless it's the winter solstice. Come on, that's not a real holiday. Uh, And a very happy new year as well. I'll see you in 2022. And until then, please remember I love you all very much. So long.